0: Welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be.
1: Hello, this is Chris from Dads with Daughters. Thanks so much for being here again today. I am really excited to have you as a part of this conversation because we're going to be talking to David Hirsch today. And David has been on a journey to be able to engage fathers in a lot of different ways. And we're going to be talking about that in his work that he has been doing on a national level, on a local level, and I am really excited to be able to introduce you to him because he has been an amazing mentor for us here at Fathering Together. So David, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. My pleasure.
1: So I always love to start by turning the clock back in time. And the first question I always love to start with is is to have you think back. Think back to that first moment, that first moment when you found out that you were going to be a father to a daughter. Tell me about that moment.
0: Wow, that's a good one, Chris. We didn't have a lot of time to think about it, which is what comes to mind. So we already had a one and a half year old. My wife was pregnant. She was going in for her ultrasounds and then uh, realized that uh, we are having twins. And uh, sadly, at the very first ultrasound that they identified that there were twins, they realized that one of the twins wasn't going to make it to fruition, if you will. Um, it had already ceased so that put us in the high-risk pregnancy area and we went about our way and about eight weeks before uh, the due date my wife went in for an exam and i was not with her i was at work i remember and i got the call and she said i've got to go to the hospital they might put me on bed rest could you make sure everything's okay with young dave and get over here as soon as you can not like there was any urgency but it would be nice to have you so I made arrangements to have one of our parents watch our one-and-a-half-year-old son. And we just live five blocks from the hospital. It's like walking distance. So it wasn't very inconvenient at all. The short story is that my wife was potentially going to have to be on bed rest for the rest of the pregnancy. She got all uptight about it. I was going to sleep in the hospital overnight with her just to be there. And it's about 10, 10.30 at night. And I'm trying to get some rest because I know it's going to be a long day. And my wife's like, something's not right. Something's not right. Could you go get somebody? I said, Peggy. You need to calm down, right? If this is going to be not just a one day, one week, it might be a month, it could be two months, right? You're just going to have to take one step at a time. And she was relentless. She goes, you need to go get somebody. It just doesn't feel right. Okay, I'll go get somebody and track down some intern and somebody comes in, they take a look and press the button. The lights go on, things fall out of the wall, people flood into the room. And within, I would say no more than 20 minutes, the baby is born congratulations, you have a daughter. So that was my first expectation about becoming a dad to a daughter. There was no time to think about it. We did not know the sex for the delivery. And that was a very precarious beginning. And she spent two weeks in the NICU. So uh, we were just thankful to have a child, that the child was healthy. And then the reality of becoming a dad to a daughter sort of settled in uh, shortly thereafter.
1: Now, I know that you After that, had two more daughters, and you have two sons. In raising daughters, what would you say was the hardest part for you in being a father to a daughter?
0: Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that you know what it was like to be a young guy growing up because you were a young guy. So having no context, um, I was one of two growing up. I have a younger brother, no girls in the family. It seemed like sort of a foreign concept. And thank God my wife and I we're very uh, engaged parents. So she sort of took the lead with the girls. I sort of took the lead with the boys. And I can remember, you know, early on, it just seemed like there's a difference between raising boys and girls. And um, as they got to be in like middle school and certainly high school, it just seems like the emotions are running at a very high level. And you would probably know this because you have what, a 13 and a 16 year old, Chris? So you're there right now. <laughs> I am. But I think the biggest challenge is that since we weren't young girls, we don't know what it's like to be a young girl growing up. We have to rely on our wife and other data points, maybe your mom or your mother-in-law to sort of help guide you. And there was a book that was recommended to me as a young dad. It's been around for decades. And I think you've actually uh, interviewed Dr. Meg Meeker, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters is the name of the book. I read that two or three times at different points in times. And it was really, really useful.
1: Now, in the same vein... As you raised your daughters, what would you say was your biggest fear in raising daughters in that period of time or even today?
0: One of my fears, I don't know if it was my biggest fear, is that girls seem more vulnerable than boys. And you, think, have the propensity to overprotect them. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is not treat my girls differently than the boys. You know, as far as the activities that we would do so, as an example, the girls all played soccer, Uh, the girls played lacrosse, they played hockey in addition to their figure skating, Uh, we'd take them fishing. We just try to do everything, you know, with the boys and the girls. And I would say that from a fear standpoint, you just want to make sure that they are resilient, that they are independent minded, and that they can take care of themselves. So, you know, you just do whatever you can to make sure that that happens.
1: Now I know that just in the past you had the opportunity to be able to be the father to a bride and you had the opportunity to be able to give your bride away but also give that speech that speech that every father gives when they're giving their their bride away you know at that reception T- tell me about that experience and what was it what it was like for you to be able to give that speech at that period and at that point in the life of your daughter
0: yeah well it was a surreal experience i think when you have children, you hope to be able to live long enough to see them maybe get married, maybe have children of their own. And my oldest daughter coincidentally was the one that got engaged first and the one that was married at the end of 2019. And it was like a surreal experience, right? Walking her down the aisle. And I was more emotional than I was expecting and giving the speech, which I had put a lot of time and preparation into. It seemed like nearly as challenging as the TEDx talk that I gave. I didn't have to like memorize the speech. I had my notes in front of me, but I wanted to make sure I didn't overlook anything Just thank everybody that was involved. Yeah, it's just something I hope that I'll have a chance to do with my other two daughters as well.
1: Now, one of the things that I talked about when I introduced you at the beginning of this today was that you've been very involved in fatherhood. You've been very involved not only in being a father yourself, but engaging other fathers in many different ways. And you did that on a local level, in your local community in chicagoland area you've done that on a statewide level in illinois and and you're doing that now on a national level with the special fathers network that you are a part of as well talk to me about the start of your passion for being an advocate an advocate for being not only a better father yourself but to be an advocate for other fathers and what led you to start the initiatives that you were starting on a local and state level, and then we'll get into the Special Fathers Network.
0: So it's really easy to timestamp. When uh, my wife and I had our fifth child at the end of 1996, I was involved with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation up in Battle Creek, Michigan. It was a three-year commitment for three years, nine months in total, and so I'm still working full-time and I'm making that type of commitment. When I started the fellowship, we had just had our third child, and by the time the fellowship was winding down, three years later, we had just had our fifth child. So life was very chaotic, and I was feeling some pressure at work, but mostly at home, traveling as much as I was with the fellowship. And while it was an enriching experience, I felt a lot of pressure. So when the fellowship was winding down shortly after our fifth child was born, I was looking for fatherhood resources. I was just going to do whatever it took to be a better dad, right, a more committed husband. And I stumbled across some guys in Kansas City with the National Center for Fathering, Dr. Ken Canfield and learn that there's some 24 million kids growing up in father absent homes and the math works out to about four out of every 10. I'm like, oh my gosh, how could this possibly be? Am I the last person on the planet to learn that that there's this issue, this consequential issue, this social issue? And as I was talking to friends and other people that I met in the community, nobody seemed to be aware of the scope or scale of the problem as well. So that motivated us to put on a community leaders briefing. 120 people show up in February of 1997, and that was the beginning of what we know today as the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative, the country's first statewide, not-for-profit fatherhood organization. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but to say that one of the things that we realized very quickly is that the most direct way to reach the heart of a father is through the words of his children. And The National Center for Fathering was doing an essay program up in Minneapolis and in Kansas City with the Twins and the Royals, respectively. and I thought, oh, that was really cool. Maybe we can get some of the kids in Illinois to write about their dads. And they were collecting about 500 or 1,000 essays per city. And all they were looking to do is recognize three or four dads on Father's Day at the Father's Day baseball game. I'm like, well, hey, we're golden. We have two baseball teams. Somebody is always going to be home on Father's Day. So we looked at the calendar. The Cubs are going to be home. So we approached the Tribune, who used to own the Cubs. And they signed on very quickly. So we did the essay contest in February. We received over 30,000 essays. So we were totally blown away. We were not prepared. And we scrambled to recruit 400 volunteers. So the volunteers read the essays, I guess it was in March. The experience that the volunteer readers had, men and women, young and old, people like you and I, Chris, people of means, in some cases, sitting elbow to elbow with incarcerated dads helping evaluate what the kids of Illinois have to say about their dads, their stepdads, their granddads, and their father figures. It was such a profound experience, we decided to reprint some of the essays in the form of a little essay booklet. 24 of the essays, two per grade, first through 12th grade. And I had this epiphany, so I take full responsibility for the failure. We got a small grant for $5,000, and we were going to print 5,000 essay booklets and sell them for $10 each. We approached the local uh, food store, Jewel Osco, here in the Chicago area, and they gave us end caps. They were really enthusiastic about supporting us. And we realized very quickly as we were approaching Father's Day that there is no market for essay booklets. They're not a book. They don't have an ISBN number. And they don't fit in the greeting card section with all the Hallmark cards and the like. So we ended up giving most of those essay booklets away. I don't even think we came anywhere close to breaking even. We didn't even get $5,000 back. But one of the essay booklets somehow, way, found its way to Harpo Studios. I got a call from one of the producers beginning of June. And they said, oh, we really like what you're doing. We're working on a special. We picked these seven of the 24 essayists. We'd like them to come in for a taping. We'd like you, David Hirsch, to be on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I'm like, oh, my God. And they said, you can bring one person. So you may or may not remember my backstory, Chris, but uh, I'm not proud of this. But I wasn't close to my dad. My parents divorced when I was six. My dad got remarried, sort of became a dad to some other kids. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, Sam Solomon, was the one that raised me. So naturally, he was the person that I asked to go with me. And at the time, he must have been 89 years old. And it was one of those out-of-body experiences being on the Oprah Winfrey Show, being interviewed for what we're talking about here. And just to recap, the uh, community leaders briefing was in February, the essay contest was in March, the essay booklet was in, the essay readings were in April, the essay booklet was in May, and we're on the Oprah Winfrey Show in June. So it was like, oh my God. So anyway, to sort of put a capstone on it, we. Illinois Father Initiative puts on three celebrations a year, one in May for the essayists, the 156 essayists from around the state. And we call that the Faces of Fatherhood Celebration. And then in June, we select uh, 12 of the dads that were written about of these 156 essay finalists, put on the June Father's Day Dinner Celebration. And then in the fall, we put on the fall fatherhood celebration. And it's for the uh, volunteer readers and then the educators who are really the ones that do most of
1: the work. It's an amazing story, but also just an amazing experience. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being one of the volunteers where you're saying you know, they, they volunteer to read these essays and you say, oh, by the way, we have 30,000 to, <laughs> to read. I'm sure that there were a few jaws that hit the floor, but that's, that's a great experience to have.
0: Well, let me make it uh, a little bit more vivid for your listeners, Chris. Each volunteer was asked to read a packet of essays. They were packaged by grade, and you might have third grade, I might have eighth grade or something like that. And we're sitting around conference room tables, mostly in corporations like Deloitte, like UBS, like the Chicago Options Exchange, bigger companies on average. And there were some community-based ones and some not-for-profits that also sponsored the essay contest as well. And we were asked to read through these essays, pick two of the essays that stuck out based on the quality of the writing obviously based on the age of the child uh, how creative the essay was and did the child understand the important role that a father plays in their life and obviously if you and i read the same 50 essays we might not even pick the same two essays just based on even those criteria so what we try to do is reread the essays a second and a third and a fourth time so they're reviewed multiple times and then those two essays that are selected from the original 50 go to the final essay reading and a group of more seasoned volunteers, or at least once we've done it a number of times, a group of more seasoned volunteers would help pick the 156 statewide essay finalists. So it's very thorough. It's very objective, as objective as it can be. That faces a fatherhood celebration where we get all these dads from around the state, you know, the dads from the North Shore on the South Side, the tall dads, the short dads, the skinny dads, the overweight dads, dads of all different ethnic backgrounds and nationalities, religious beliefs. It is literally the faces of fatherhood. That was always a highlight for most of us.
1: All of that experience led you forward, and it led you forward to now you have a brand new initiative and a new nonprofit that you are working on called the Special Fathers Network. Tell me the story of this network, and what made you decide that you wanted to take on this new challenge, and what is this network trying to do?
0: Yeah, well, the backstory on the second charity the first charity's name is the Illinois Father Initiative the second charity's name is the 21st Century Dads Foundation so initially the vision was i've been advocating for kids and dads for 20 years or so and i've developed these friendships like you're beginning you and Brian are beginning to develop around the country by going to conferences and just networking with people like you are so i probably have a dozen a couple dozen of these friends that have been doing this like as about as long as i have 20 20, 25 plus years, and my vision for the 21st Century Dads Foundation was we are going to work together to raise more awareness, more money, and have a bigger impact because we all seem to be doing our own things. And you've already stumbled across this with the work that you're doing, Chris. So I was literally sitting at my kitchen counter one Saturday after my baby went off to college. This is circa uh, 2015, and I thought I heard God talking to me, not aloud like you and I are talking, but like on my heart. And the message I was receiving was, you should do a cross-country bicycle ride. And I'm like, hmm, that seems sort of strange. I'm not an endurance bike rider and I don't even own a bicycle you could ride across the country. Why are you telling me to do this? So I couldn't sh- shake the thought or the idea. So I started talking with friends who I knew were endurance bike riders and they said, do this, don't do that. And I finally got the gumption to say something to my wife about this idea. And it, she was very crystal clear about this. My wife is very clear about most things. If that's what you wanna do with three weeks of your summer, that's on you. I'm not gonna drive one of those SAG vehicles and I'm not riding. That's what she said. So what I heard was she didn't say no. You know, she shot down a lot of other ideas, but she didn't shoot down this idea. So I sort of by default thought, okay, maybe uh, I'll pursue this a little bit further. So one thing led to the next. I bought a bike, I started training and put a crew together, put a schedule together, Put all the resources together, flew out to LA, started pedaling back, and I literally rode 2,300 plus miles in 21 days at age 54. And that experience was amazing. It was transformative. We called the Dad's Honor Ride 2015. And we raised some money. We raised a lot of awareness doing media in each of the towns that we went through. And admittedly, the idea came about rather quickly, because the kernel for the idea was in February. I bought the bike in April, and then I'm flying out to LA at the end of May. So a lot of my friends didn't have much time to react to get a rider or to be engaged. But they said, "Oh, if you do this again, uh, we'll definitely be involved." So we planned a second dad's on a ride from Boston to Chicago, lopped off 900 miles. It's only 1,400 miles from Boston to Chicago, and while the number of riders increased from 10 riders the first year to 38 riders the second year. I can count on one hand with five fingers left over how many of my friends put a person on a bike for a day, nada. And while that event was very successful, three or four times bigger based on the number of riders or participants, admittedly the objective, one of the primary objectives for the 21st Century Dads Foundation was to engage these other fatherhood charities and it just didn't happen. Maybe I'm not the right guy. Maybe there's not really much of an interest in doing endurance bike riding. We're talking about riding 75, 100-plus miles a day. So we'd already committed to do a third dad's honor ride. It ended to be a nine-day ride around Lake Michigan, which was really, I like the length of time, nine days versus 21 days. But since the objective didn't get met, we were thinking, well, okay, maybe we'll just close this down. And then um, the group of volunteers that was behind the... 21st Century Dads Foundation, helped narrow down what we thought were some of the four of the biggest challenges in fathering. And briefly, they were raising children in high poverty areas, urban areas. The second was working with incarcerated dads, uh, men who have been removed not only from their family, but society. And I'd like to think most of them are just guys that made some bad decisions as opposed to being bad guys. The third was working with teen fathers, men who become fathers inadvertently before they turn 20 years old. And then the fourth was uh, working with dads, raising kids with special needs because of the challenges that go along with that. And I'd been saying for the better part of a decade, Chris, that some of the best parenting that I've witnessed is in the special needs community. These moms and dads are fierce advocates, better advocates than on average than any other parents that I've ever met. And they have to be because their kids in many cases are so vulnerable. So we lopped off the first two categories, the urban dads and incarcerated dads, focused on the teen fathers and dads raising kids with special needs came to learn very quickly there's very little infrastructure around teen parenting there are programs for moms but not really for dads and sadly here in Chicago we have classrooms full of young women who have either just had a child or are pregnant and are going to have a child and they're doing whatever they can to make sure they get a high school education and if not a GED as if having a GED or a high school education is going to allow you to be competitive in a global economy like we have but It's some level of education. So what we ended up doing was focusing most of our time and efforts into what is known today as the Special Fathers Network, a dad-to-dad mentoring program for fathers raising children with special needs. And to date, we've recruited uh, more than 400 dads. These are our uh, mentor fathers, the guys that have, on average, 10 or more years of experience raising a child, or in some cases, multiple kids. With special
1: needs, that's an amazing story, and 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 really the of the genesis, but also how it's come into being. I mean, I know now you are you've got a podcast, you've got your mentors. You know what's what's next for the Special Fathers Network, um, and if people want to to get involved, if they if they're hearing this and they say, "Hey, I'm a father of a special needs child, I'd like to get connected with this," where should they go?
0: So uh, you mentioned we have a podcast. I've been interviewing dads now for a little bit more than two years. I think last episode was episode 117. And these are men for the most part from around the country, but we've also done some international interviews, not by design, like I'm looking to do something internationally, but we're just being introduced to dads. So if any of your listeners are one of those dads who's raising a child or children with special needs or knows of another family who's raising a child with special needs, by all means, uh, please reach out to us. We'd love to have them be part of the network if they're younger dads to be a mentee. If they're dads with more seasoning or experience to be a mentor father, what we've realized is that we don't have two distinct groups of mentors and mentees. And the reason I say that is that we had designed this program after a a friend's charity, a friend who grew up in Michigan, lived in Chicago for quite a few years, and then he's back in Michigan. His name is Johnny Immerman. And if any of your listeners have been exposed to cancer, right, they want to make a note of this as well. Immerman Angels is the name of the charity. It's a Chicago-based charity with a national scope. They've recruited 8,500 cancer survivors, and they've matched those cancer survivors more than 50,000 times. So the short story was Johnny is a two-time testicular cancer survivor. He had such a meaningful experience volunteering in a pediatric cancer ward a second time that he recruited some of his fellow cancer patients to be volunteers. And that's what morphed into Immerman's Angels with the 8,500 volunteers. And on one of those long distance bike rides, I was thinking, oh, what model could we apply to fatherhood? And we were interested in doing something with mentors, and then Immerman's Angels, which is one of these great peer-to-peer programs, came to mind. We thought, well, why don't we recruit dads who have 10 or more years of experience raising a child with special needs, and we'll match them with the younger dads who are close to the beginning of their journey using the same type of metrics. And that's what we began to do. So those 400-plus dads have, on average, 10 or more years of experience. But what we realize is that we don't have two distinct groups. We don't have just the mentors and the mentees. Like Immerman has the angels, which are the volunteers, the ones that have been in remission for five years or more. And then they have the cancer fighters, which is everybody else under five years. So there's two distinct groups. There's really nobody in the middle. Um, But what we have is this large group of dads. Most of the 400 dads have kids that are eight. 10, 12, 14 years old, and they're volunteering to be mentors. They want to help the younger dads, and they're very well equipped to do that. But because they have so many years of parenting, so many years of fathering ahead of themselves, they would benefit also from having a mentor themselves. So we don't have a name for them, but what we're trying to do is match those guys with the 10 to 14 years of experience with the younger dads, and then also match them the other way with more seasoned dads who have maybe 20 or 25 or 30 years of experience because there's different milestones that these families experience. And that's one thing that your listeners could do is to you know just engage if they are a family with special needs kids or if they know of somebody. You had also asked, what are we doing? What's next for the Special Fathers Network? One of the things that we did was, like every other not-for-profit, we had to pivot. We were going to put on a conference back in May And we expected to get 80 dads face-to-face, dads raising kids with special needs together for a full day on a Saturday. And it wasn't meant to be with COVID. So we did a conference, a virtual conference, and we shortened it to two and a half hours as opposed to a full day. We had over 180 people register from 30 different states and six different countries. So that sort of opened up a lot of doors and avenues for us that we weren't anticipating. And one of the outcomes of that is we've been doing biweekly calls on the first and third Tuesday of every month. The dads took a survey. They gave us the top 14 topics they wanted to talk about. And then what we're doing is we're recruiting, for the most part, dads with the seasoned experience to be our facilitators or the presenters. And it's amazing, right, the dialogue or the conversations that are taking place. So I'm hoping we can perpetuate the bi weekly calls that we're doing on various topics that appeal to these families. And then again, just you know, tap into the resources of the network. I'm hoping that we'll be able to do a couple of other things. One of the things that we're evaluating is a mastermind group, where you might get ten dads together and have them go through life, if you will, together on a weekly basis. And we're very close to uh, launching our first group of ten dads. So, if any of your listeners would have any interest in doing something like this, by all means, we would love to engage them as well. But we want to prove the concept and. If it works for a group of 10 dads, there's no reason it couldn't work for a second or a third or 10 10 groups or 50 groups or 100 groups. And what we're realizing is that it's just another way to get dads to engage with one another. The mentoring concept works really well for some dads, but it might not be enough, right? They want more contact. And instead of being put one-on-one with a mentor, maybe there's some learning to be had by being in a group of dads. Maybe not all Down syndrome or all cerebral palsy or all autism, but you know, sprinkling these various special needs across the uh, mastermind groups. Um, because while the challenge might be a little bit different depending on the child's diagnosis, a lot of the things that the families are experiencing are very similar, the isolation that they feel
1: I appreciate you sharing that because I think that it's an amazing group that you've put together. And I highly encourage people to visit and explore and be able to learn more because I think that for those that are going through this, as we've talked about in Fathering Together, it's so important to have that community and have that group of individuals that you can turn to that have gone through it in the past that you can learn from, but also that have your back and that are willing to be there when you really need it because there's going to be that point in time where you hit the wall and you are frustrated or you just don't know what to do next and having those people that you can turn to is so important and having a network like you've that you've created i think is really important as well now david i know that you also wrote a book on top of everything else that you did you also became an author you have a book called the father's journey to break the cycle of father absence now tell me more about this book
0: Well, after the first Dads on a Ride, I was sharing all these experiences with people. I had the benefit of giving a TEDx talk and sort of synthesizing it all because I felt like I was repeating a lot of the same stories and people were saying, oh, you should just put it all in writing, make it easy for people, right? You've had all these extraordinary experiences. So I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not an author. This is not what I really wanted to do. But somehow, someway, we got the book done at the beginning of 2016 and the title of which is 21st Century Dads, A Father's Journey to Break the Cycle of Father Absence. It really has three components, not like part one, part two, part three, but I was motivated to put these thoughts together for three reasons. So part of it is, how does a 54-year-old ride uh, 2,300 plus miles in 21 days? So for those that are interested in riding and uh, being athletic, I'm sure that your curiosity will be satisfied. But it's more about my advocacy the advocacy for kids and dads like we've been talking about and then what i realized when i was on the first dad's honor ride was i was starting to share with people what my motivation for doing all this work has been and initially like i shared with you chris i would said that i stumbled across these statistics right 24 million kids growing up in father absent homes four of every 10 in america everybody has this perception that it's those poor inner city black kids and by the way, it's really a big challenge in the black community. Seven or eight out of 10 of them are growing up in single-parent families. But in absolute numbers, two times the number of white versus black kids are growing up in father-absent homes across our country. And you know, there's a lot of stats, and I would be quick to rattle off that they're four times more likely to grow up in poverty, nine times more likely to drop out of high school. And that's something that's intellectual, right? That appeals to certain people. But really what was driving me And I mentioned this, that when I became a dad for the fifth time, I was motivated to look for fatherhood resources. Well, I wasn't motivated to look for statistics. Really what motivated me was my fear, my fear that I wouldn't have a close relationship with my kids because I didn't have a close relationship with my dad. And I witnessed that my dad didn't have a close relationship with his dad. And it was really weighing on me, right? What do I have to do to make sure that doesn't happen to me? So... I started to open up a little bit when I was on the dad's honor rides, doing some of these interviews and doing the TEDx talk. And then I put that in the book as well. And I think what I've realized after all these years of advocacy, and I wasn't hiding anything. It wasn't like I was being super secretive. Anybody that was close to me knew what my situation was, but I wasn't quick to share that. And what I've learned is that we all have challenges, right? As human beings. And there's things that, you know, you, Might not be proud of or you might not feel comfortable sharing but in reality when you show your vulnerability when you share what your concerns and your fears are you're just more authentic right and that's what i've taken away from all this and that's why i wrote the book is just to be more authentic about you know what's really going on and that's okay right it's not a death sentence you know if you're divorced or if you don't have custody of your kids but you do have to be more intentional about being a dad so Anyway, thanks for asking. In fact, uh, we just got around to creating an Audible version of the book. So it's in print as well as Audible now.
1: One other thing that you told me about were, were was something called dad coins, great dad coins. Tell me about these great dad coins.
0: Yeah, well, interestingly, the concept of a challenge coin has been around for well, probably the better part of 100 years now. Shortly after World War I uh, was when they started to become more visible. And most people associate challenge coins with the military uh, men in the military have been presenting coins to one another for like i said the better part of a hundred years and it's usually an officer presenting a coin of his own to men his platoon or his regiment based on merit based on an accomplishment not just to everybody so they become keepsakes and what i witnessed is that i was starting to receive some of these coins uh, because i was going to the retirement ceremonies of some of my friends guys who put 20 more years in the military. And then I also witnessed that there were some not-for-profit organizations that were using coins to commemorate their anniversaries, like the Medal of Honor Society had a 150-year commemorative celebration and put a coin together. So I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was a coin to honor dads? And we scoured the internet about six or seven years ago, and we couldn't find anything. So we just took it upon ourselves to develop our own coin. We call it the Great Dad's Coin. There's a lot of symbolism that goes into the coin. And I'll just mention that on the face of the coin are four words. They are love, patience, honesty, and commitment. And those are the four attributes that we think every great dad possesses. And on the other side of the coin, it says that great dads are present physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And uh, it's not just making your financial responsibilities. And when we were doing those dad's honor rides, what we were doing was we were presenting these coins to men we were meeting along the way. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how many people have purchased the coins, right? Uh, they go to support the charity as well and have been honoring their dads or their stepdads or their granddads. And curiously, we were getting multiple orders, like people were ordering four and five and ten coins at a time. We're like, why would anybody be buying that many coins? So we did a little survey, and what we realized that many of those were grandparents. Grandparents were buying these for their sons and their son-in-laws. And I didn't understand it at the time. I wasn't a grandfather at the time. I'm a grandfather now. We have a one-and-a-half-year-old grandson. But from a grandparent's perspective, the most important people on the planet are not their children anymore. They're their grandchildren. And you'll do whatever you can to make sure that those grandkids are growing up as well as they can. And part of that is making sure that the dad, the son-in-law, or the son, right, is thinking about you know this responsibility on a daily basis. So most of these men carry their great-dad coin in their pocket with them every day, 24-7, or they keep it on their um, credenza or in their workspace so that they're reminded periodically, consciously, or subconsciously about their commitment as a father. And I will, as a special favor for allowing me to share that story, Chris, I will send you your great-dad coin. Actually, I'd prefer to present it to you in the form of a handshake because I think it would be more meaningful, but because uh, people aren't shaking hands anymore. And who knows, maybe we'll never be shaking hands anymore. But all joking aside, I'd like to present one of these to you as well.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. Now, we always finish our interviews with what we'd like to call our Fatherhood Five, where I ask you five questions about you as a dad. Are you ready? I'll try. Number one, in one word, what is fatherhood?
0: One word. That doesn't seem fair. I'm going to cheat. I'm just going to say it's the journey of a lifetime.
1: So tell me a time when you felt like you finally succeeded at being a father to a daughter.
0: Wow. I'm going to go back to the story that we had discussed earlier, which was walking my daughter down the aisle. I think I'd mentioned she was a set of twins. One didn't make it. She was a preemie for, I guess, two weeks in the NICU. When she was in high school, I don't think she would mind me saying this. She was diagnosed with anorexia. And that was a really touch and go situation. Now she's married and she's a fourth year medical school student. So I would say that's one of the accomplishments, not the accomplishment, the greatest, but that's the one that
1: comes to mind. Now, if I were to talk to your daughters today, what would you want them to say in regards to how they would describe you as a father?
0: Well, I'd like to think that they thought that I was involved, that I was committed and they could rely on me.
1: Who inspires you to be a better dad? Well,
0: that's easy. I think I made reference to the fact earlier that some of the best parenting that I've witnessed is in the special needs community. So I am totally inspired on a daily, weekly basis by the men that I'm in direct contact with that are raising kids with special needs.
1: And finally, what's a piece of advice that you would want to give to other dads?
0: I'll offer two pieces of advice. If you could only do one thing, be involved in the education of your child. All the research supports that when both parents are involved, the educational outcomes go up and a lot of the things that are holding kids in society back, it all has to do with education. But I think it's most important just to be present. What the state expects of us is that we'll be financially responsible. But what we really need to be thinking about is beyond just being financially responsible, we need to be present physically, emotionally, and spiritually in our kids' lives.
1: Now, if people want to find out more about Anything that you've been talking about, about what you're doing, listening to your podcast, et cetera, where should they go to get that information?
0: Well, the easiest thing to do is go to the 21stCenturyDads.org website. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. And they can always send me an email at David at 21stCenturyDads.org as well.
1: Well, David, I appreciate you being on today. Thank you for sharing all of these stories with us. And thank you for your commitment and your passion to working with dads to help them be better dads.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, Chris. I admire what you and Brian are doing with the Dads with Daughters Facebook page. More importantly, fathering together and all the effort you're putting together uh, to help dads be more engaged with their children, not just their daughters, but their sons as well. So uh, I'm hoping that you guys will have more success than you're anticipating.
1: If you've enjoyed today's episode of the Dads with Daughters podcast, we invite you to check out the Fatherhood Insider. The Fatherhood Insider is the essential resource for any dad that wants to be the best dad that he can be. We know that no child comes with an instruction manual, and most dads are figuring it out as they go along. And the Fatherhood Insider is full of resources and information that will up your game on fatherhood. Through our extensive course library, interactive forum, step by step roadmaps, and more, you will engage and learn with experts, but more importantly, dads like you. So check it out Calling astronauts and firemen, carpenters and muscle men. Get out and be the one to them. Be the best dad you can be. Be the best dad you can be.